Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 12 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Keeping yourself grounded is an important life skill. Having a solid mental and physical home base allows us to rejuvenate, process, reflect, and plan our next steps or path. My guest this episode always has both feet firmly on the ground. Whenever we talk, it allows me to self-assess and see if I'm in need of a deep breath and return to my foundations. It's obvious that he does it daily, and it serves him and the ones he seeks to serve very well. We talk a lot about self-reflection and personal honesty, and how that affects the lens you see yourself, others, and challenges through. We also cover disenchantment and being reinvigorated in our careers, the privilege of being a student and an instructor, and the importance of supported people in our lives. I'm glad you're going to scratch the surface of getting to know him. Here's Johnny Cadiz. Hey, Johnny. Hey, what's up, Scott? It's going good, man. It's going yeah. good. So I was thinking about trying to get you on here, and obviously, like, life and kids and work, and it's tough. Yeah. And I was trying to frame it on how I've uh, been trying to work on you, and I've, I've came to realize I was respectfully, consistently insistent. <laughs> Well, I appreciate it. That, I appreciate it. Is that a good way to put yeah, it? Yeah. 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 It's hey, a compliment, man. I just want you here. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, it was a good, uh, it's a good ride up. It's a yeah. good ride up, and it's been a long time coming. Yeah. I got to hear a bunch of, bunch of my mentors talk. So. Right. Got to speak to them too, and I'm just glad to be here. Now it's the completion of the trifecta. Oh, I don't know about that. Clayton just... Brass, and now you. <laughs> uh. You're your own little trifecta. I'm you just, gotta... uh, I'm just happy to to uh to learn from them yeah those guys those guys have pretty much shaped a lot of my moving forward in my career because the first half was a bit different i think we all kind of same we we look at things from a different light when we first start and then a light switch flicks and you either realize which path you're going on because of gentlemen like those two i kind of realized where mine was going to go well, for the recruits, you've been spending some time with them. So you're being the same way for them as these other guys have been for you, right? Yeah. It was cool because we always had our um, our meetings very casual. And sitting in front of recruits, it's a bit different because it's a little bit more formal. But I think there's a way to convey the message that they've taught me and many other great firemen have taught me in a formal setting as opposed to the casual setting where we're sitting around the bay or having a cup of coffee or, or just chatting. Yeah. Yeah. Or just the three of you in front of a door. Yeah. 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 yeah <laughs> it's a different level, right? There's different levels of conversation. Yep. It's it's taking from it. Taking from it and being appreciative of it. Passing it on. Know your space, know your audience. Yeah. And right. that's the big thing is is understanding who you're speaking to and then going with it. <laughs> or even so speaking with. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the big one, right? The biggest thing that many of the good instructors taught me was you have conversations with people, you talk to them and you don't, uh, you don't dictate to them because when you force a message on them, it's not going to happen. But when you talk to them and the conversation goes both ways and it sets in better, you have both parties being more receptive. The choice is on them. Exactly. And you mentioned uh, context too, like putting things in context. And I want to touch on that when we get to uh, instructing. For sure. But let's start from the start. All right. You're uh, another born and bred, and yeah. raised. Yeah, I think I was, uh, must have been 27, about 27 years born and raised in Brampton. Pretty much did everything there growing up and then had a family and had to had to vacate and find a, find another place. And, you know, thankfully I'm not too far away from Brampton, which means, you know, I get to still experience all the things that I had growing up, um, the busyness, 
having family still around there, that's important. So not being far is a good thing for me. So tell me a bit about your folks growing up and your family and how that was. Oh, it was, it's pretty cool. It was pretty cool growing up. My mom was a nurse. She had varied experiences working from kids to the, to the elderly. My dad, he was an engineer, and he pretty much taught me about tinkering and messing with tools and stuff like that. And he always had a different approach and a very technical view of things. So it was good to have him to, to pick his brain about things and see how he'd look at it in a technical light, but then applying a somewhat more practical approach to it. was It was good because I think it helped how I look at things now and how I solve a problem now. So having both of them there was it's pretty cool. And uh, my mom, her nursing side or her experiences in that regard kind of shaped how I look at part of our job. And my dad's technical side shapes how I look at the other part of our job because, you know, we deal with people, but we also deal with problems that need to be solved. And having both of their input growing up kind of routed how I, how I deal with things now. So pretty fortunate. I got a pretty awesome sister. Yeah, she's cool. Now I got a wonderful wife and my two kids. They're like uh, super supportive. They let me do things. And you've got them uh, tinkering too? Yeah, yeah. My one daughter wants to weld. She's played on the forest door that I built. And my other daughter's just a, just a whiz. Every time I have a science question, I'll just ask her. And uh, my wife, she just backs me up all the time. Everything. She's, if they say I'm into the job, she's, she's pretty cool into the job. She knows there's no I in Vez. <laughs> I was even thinking about that when I read your uh, bio you sent me about there's no I in Vez and you know there's almost even no V and E it's just search isn't it yeah it's (laughs) it's we have an obligation we have people and them Cody Truster will drop that one on I've been kind of looking at that one I've been like yep it's all about them we place ourselves ahead of everything everywhere else but when the tones drop it's it's about them so take care of everything else before that your responsibility happens before that for yourself. And after that, you drop it for them. And that's where I look at everything with my family. Yeah, it's the driving force. And I know you're very much back to basics. You know, the basics, the fundamentals matter. Yeah. But you don't shy away from the research, you know, whatever's new. So you just speaking about your dad and taking all that knowledge, information and the technical side of things and then applying in a practical way. Is that how you're approaching firefighting now? Yeah, I kind of try and take as much information in, in as I can. Obviously, I have my influences and stuff like that, but in order to have the picture, you have to have both sides of the story. But you also realize that nothing is new and everything that, that I've learned, someone shared with me. So it's nice to dig into the books and dig into the weeds of things and find out where it did come from, how it lays or works within context of how people are applying it. And you, you see little gems and things, and you, you get a broader look of how we're approaching the, I guess, what people call the new fire service, but really, firefighting's still firefighting. Has uh, how you've approached having conversations with people that you may disagree with changed? Yeah, entirely. I think as we all mature, we look at things in a different light, and I've learned that certain approaches just aren't good for, for learning. And whenever you have a conversation, you're learning, right? All you're trying to do is just get, is share information and learn information. But yeah, I've changed my approach on how things are. You know, you got to be, you got to be flexible, but being flexible doesn't always mean compromising your, your position. It just means being flexible. 
Yeah, one of the things I've learned recently, I'm a little late to the game, is called steel manning. So what it is, is you would take the person's argument that you disagree with, and you would try and bolster that and support it and see it from their point of view as much as possible so that when you say, I hear, or I believe this is what you think, and not in a degrading way, I'm actually trying to argue your side. So I would fully absorb it, take it in, think of it from your shoes, argue it back to you, and you would say, yes, that's exactly how I feel. And from there, that's actually the strongest place for you to then um, say your side because you fully understand their side. Yeah, and that's where the, the time and the effort in a conversation has to happen, right? And I think that's one thing that I've also learned is that in order to have that conversation, even if you have differing viewpoints, you still have to be all into that conversation in order to have a good conversation. Like, I guess if you're dismissive before it starts, then you're not going to have a conversation and it's just going to be button heads and stuff like that. But you got to see and understand why they're bringing it. And the senior guys before me have taught me that everyone has their little things because they have different experiences than myself. So before you, you know, be like, yeah, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. Try and find out what their experiences were and why it plays heavily into their position. And that's kind of one of the things that's that's changed how I have a discussion about things that maybe I'm not in total agreement with. Speaking your point without necessarily hinging on changing theirs. Yeah, exactly. If we understand that, you know, our job is not to change their position, but to have a conversation and maybe give them insight into yours and you obviously learn a bit about theirs. And I think everyone grows at the end of it. So if people want to put I in Vez, so we can let that one go. You know what? Get the job done. <laughs> sure. Go in there and get the job done. No matter done. what you call it. Yeah. yeah. But don't forget your fundamentals. That's the emphasis of it. Because when I was taught certain things, you know, you understand that a certain set of things needs to be done and I don't need to be told how to do it. Or I don't need to be spelling out how to do it or else I'd have an acronym longer than the alphabet. But understanding the context and why is more important. So if you can go in there and do it and get the search done, get the search done. But I'm also a bit of a traditionalist, right? And I try to realize where and why things occurred and then try and make sure it somewhat maintains. Do you appreciate now that there's a lot of data available to back things up where there might not have been before? Um, Percentages, you know, with searches and where people are found and that that helps support your feelings in your own mind and then helps you dialogue with other people about it as well? It, I think it does. Like having data is a good thing, right? But listening to senior members and listening to guys outside of our, our department and stuff talk and, and learning from the texts that guys have been writing for a long time and guys who, who fought a lot of fires, they've known this stuff. Now you have someone else that's just putting numbers behind it. I can't remember who I was talking to, but they were saying that all the data has been out there and all the background to it has been there, just hasn't been quantified. But those guys haven't had the ability to get the message out there. I guess that's what I'm getting at is that all the stuff's been there. Everyone's kind of proven it. Um, until they're asked or until they tell. Yeah. It's the data's not being tracked. Yeah. And it's you like also, not writing history. Exactly. But you also realize that they've been doing this forever. They just haven't found the need to, you know, run around and tell everyone. It's kind of funny because I was looking at some of the older books and you know, all this stuff they're talking about, I'm like, it's right there. They've been doing this since X, Y, and Z because there's, with every new, or what people call a new fire tactic or whatever, I can pull out a book and be like, no, no, they've been documenting that one for a while and this is why it works. You've known for a while that you want to be in emergency services. You were one of the kids that grew up and knew that they wanted to do something in that regard. 
How did it start out for you? You know what? I think being exposed to my grandfather on my, uh, my mom's side, he fought in the war and he came back after that and he was the chief of police and he was always like speaking of being a police officer and stuff and he competed like up until his older age in like the seniors games and stuff and he did like target shooting and stuff like wow. that. So he was like, you know, he was into the job and I hear the stories of when he was younger and how he helped people and stuff like that and how there were guys out there that were troubled or whatever, but he still put the time and effort into trying to help him out. And that, that was pretty cool. Growing up, he was just kind of one of the guys I looked to. Like he was, he was the dude. <laughs> and he had a practical mindset and a compassionate mindset. Yeah. And then I found out like, I don't know, a couple of years ago when I saw a picture that he was also the chief of the fire department. And let, let's let's frame this here and let's uh, get the full story. Yeah, it's a small island. It's a small town. But he was still the boss. And I thought that was pretty cool. So where were they located? You said it was an island. That's yeah, they were in the Philippines. Okay. Small island in the middle of the Philippines. Wow. And he, uh, yeah, he was the chief there for a while. Taking a look at that picture. Like, I've always had a picture of him in his, uh, his uniform. But then I found his department picture. And I was like, there's fire trucks there like old school fire trucks. And I looked at the very bottom faded caption and it said he was the chief of the police and fire department. And yeah, it was probably like, you know, it was a long time ago, but it still, it still matters to me. Are you connected to those roots? Have you dug deeper into your roots there? Have you looked into what policing and firefighting was like during your grandfather's time? Have you done that not, work yet? No, not during his time. I haven't, haven't got that far. You interested in doing that? Um, there's certain parts of it that, that fascinate me, but then there's the other part of it that, you know, they're very small. So I don't know how progressive they've been. And it's been a very long time since I've been back. So, you know, just finding these, the beginning of these roots is pretty cool. I had military service personnel and on my dad's side of the family too, and hearing their stories kind of pointed me towards, you know, hey, you know, there's a bit of lineage here about service and, you know, hearing those stories was, was pretty cool growing up. So your first venture with uh, education academics was policing. Oh man. Yeah. we got to talk about it. Oh yeah. No, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So you would have made a great cop by the way. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. You would. I appreciate that. Yeah, it takes special people and you're definitely one of them that could do it. Oh man. Thanks. It was, uh, it was yeah, because I had that strong influence. I thought policing was where I wanted to go. I looked into it, checked the backgrounds, and saw what I needed to do to get it. I applied, I guess it must have been like grade 11 or grade 12. That's a long time ago for me. So <laughs> looking back at that, and I'm like, okay, I applied, and I got accepted. The program was was going to start, but in between semesters or in between years or so, I decided I want to do the co-op program and see what it's actually like. And because of some events, I just couldn't get in. It was probably timing or something like that. I couldn't get in. But you had to put in two applications to two different places. And my second pick was fire. And I went in for the interview, did all that, and sat through it and stuff. And I waited, 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 found out I didn't get into police. And then I had a phone call saying, hey, uh, the fire department still says you're welcome to join them for the semester if you'd like. And I'm like you know what, it'll still give me insight into how the services work. And it'll probably give me an insight to seeing all three services work together. So I said, yeah, and bought a pair of safety boots and showed up at the old uh, division of fire and life and went up top and sat there and learned. And that's where I met George Hitchcock. Special man. Beyond. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he helped me out quite a bit, went up there, 
after about the first week walking in Station 7, seeing those guys and seeing how they how they worked and and how how they solve problems. Like, how do you go to a call and have very little information than what's relayed to you? And then they show up and they throw down and everything is all right. There's something about that that was appealing. And then being around there, seeing that, you know, the guys were into it and they took care of everything. They took care of the rigs. And at that time, it was like the late 90s, just before the 2000s. And you know the crew that was there on C-Shift. Yeah, they were, they were, they were pretty squared away. So that kind of changed everything. And then I realized, okay, I got to decline going to college for policing and then figure out what my next couple of years are going to be. Cause I have no idea what I need to get on the fire department, but I just knew I had to do it. Like, this is something that I really wanted to do. And because of George, Debbie and Bob, they're like, okay, well, you got to go to this. You got to do that. And you know, did all the tests and yeah. What but, were you doing work-wise? Like, what did you first do? What was your first job? What was sort of your work experience leading up to getting on? Um, I just did random stuff, you know, bus tables and worked a, worked a retail gig, did some security jobs and stuff. That was pretty cool because everyone that I worked with there wanted to go somewhere else. And not in the sense that they're using that just to buy time, but they actually cared about the position they were in at that time. And it showed. It showed how they worked, showed their discipline. And it was pretty cool to be a part of that group for a bit. And it led me to where I am, right? Just seeing their examples and stuff. And no matter what job you have, you can just do it well at that moment. You don't have to be there forever, but. That's just the expectation, right? Like you put in what you want out. And I knew that I wanted better. So if I put in good here, then you know, hopefully things will line up and I'll, I'll get better. You were actually working in Station 2's area. You and I are connected Yes. before you even got on. Yes. We would run into each other often. Oh, we ran into each other at Humber College. Yeah. That was crazy. It was. So that's, we're spanning on almost 20 years, man. We are. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so it, in 2's area, where the city center is, yeah. that's where you're doing security gigs. And we yeah. would go on alarms and you would be there. Yeah. And we would chat. Yeah. And I remember you mentioning to me so many times, it wasn't long after you got on. I mean, I was on a 98, you got in 2003. So like yeah. that wasn't a big length of time where no. there's not much that's insignificant now considering how long we've been on. I was going to say, yeah. It doesn't, even, it doesn't even matter. But, and you would say, I want to get on fire. And you know, a lot of, obviously, you know, now a lot of people say that and you know, we, you know, we're sort of on a, on a job and we're just doing our thing. And I believed you, but I mean, a lot of people say that, right? Yep. So we give our answers, like just keep trying and, you know, offer what we can in the short period of time that we're interacting. But the next thing you know, you show up and then you end up working at too. Yeah, because when I was in co-op, I was like, wow, this department's pretty great. And, you know, I just want to be on a truck. You know, I want to have a seat at the table. What's it going to take to get on there? So I did all that stuff. And then thankfully, I ended up where I did. And, and it just worked out even better. Because over the years, like that's, I grew up there. That's where I went to like elementary school in that area. So all the back roads and stuff like that. It was something pretty cool and comforting to know that, hey, I know where I'm going. I know what that building is. I've been here before. And yeah, and then hanging out and seeing... Seeing you guys pull up on calls, that was cool too. Did you have some surreal experiences then, like being on the actual trucks and running in your area, running to that city center? Like, Yeah, before it all changed, like obviously everything got renovated and stuff. Like I'd know all the, the different entrances, where to go, how to, how to get around that place. But things like going to the neighborhood that I grew up in, responding to the, to the elementary school that I went into, obviously it's grown like three times in size, but understanding that, hey man, when that was like a one-story school, that was me. That was where I was. 
and just being there felt pretty comforting, right? Like it's it's my home, it's my hometown. And then you get a different bit of ownership to it, right? I got family living there. Like you know, we should all take ownership in our in our cities that we work in and stuff like that. But it was just different. Yeah, I got family working here. I got uh, I used to play in that uh, that playground and stuff or that construction site because that's all it used to be back then. And when you're not on shift, you know, possibly protecting those people, the other people that are working with you, or it's on them, right? Yeah, and that's the thing, right? Like we owe it to the people in our city to be the best we can because when we leave and we're in our city, the brothers and sisters in our hometowns are doing the same thing. So the expectation that we have of them is what we need to bring out when we show up on our job. And that's one of the big driving forces, right? I know the guys in my hometown are pretty squared away and that's the expectation that I have to bring when I show up at work because I wouldn't want anything less for my family. So you took the pre-service program at Humber. How was that? It was cool. It was before, I guess... I think it was before everything kind of got regulated or so and you know it was pretty much a broad course and it was I guess just shy of two years but we did a lot of hands-on stuff we spent a lot of time drilling which was cool because you know you get your hands dirty I was young and I was young when I got on and you know getting my hands in there and trying to do stuff was beneficial and then you know sitting in the class and and learning some of the stuff from the varied experiences because all the instructors came from very different places so you know you get different perspectives which is good. And then I kind of realized in college, I had a wide view of the fire service because of the broad range of instructors. Then I went to the city and then we learned the city way of doing things and stuff. And then now I'm at that point where like, you know what, I need to go see that broad view of instructors again and see what else the world has to offer, right? I know you had a guy on here, he said it, don't be confined by the four walls of your department. He kind of drove a lot of that. Even though you had high quality instruction in that program, and I think this is something we need to be aware of as instructors, that there were still things that now you look back that you wish you were taught in pre-service. Have you reflected at all on, even though we're doing our best to give the highest quality instruction we can based on what we know, that we're still missing stuff too? And is that just the nature of the business? We just do our, the best with what we have in the moment and we're always gonna look back and go, I wish I could have, would have, should have said that or taught that. Because there's a growth with instructors, right? Oh yeah. Oh. We, we can't always think that we've got it nailed down now because we are where we are, right? The perpetual student, right? And I think that's one of the goals is to always look at it from the student's viewpoint and how can I learn from this and how can I move more? But going back to like what I learned in college and stuff, I think they have to offer so much stuff. And again, this is predating what's going on now. This is like 2001. Looking back then, they had to cover such a broad range of skills and topics and stuff. And obviously it cut into some of the drill time, but I wish that, you know, we spent more time on learning the firemanship skills, the basics, and we hammered away at them until we were proficient at it, until we were competent at it. Being fortunate enough to take some courses, you realize the time frame involved in some of these things isn't as big as we think it takes. It's more of just what do we do after that? What, what does the student do after that? Because I'm pretty sure they expose us to a lot of things, but there's a difference between exposure and learning. You can expose me to a ton of skills, but have I really learned them? And that's on me. Now I got to learn it. So, you know, I wish they f wish we spent more time just doing the basics of things. And we covered a lot of the fundamental fire skills. Our recruitment program is starting to tweak that a little bit. Why do a full week of hazmat? Why do a full week of tech rescue? Why do driving when that's not what you're going to be doing the first 
couple years. years yeah. Your, yeah, I mean, if you land at two and you're on the tech rescue team, then you can be bumped up to the basics there. You've, you've had your awareness level, obviously. Yeah. But you can do that in a day or two. But why not use that valuable, valuable time to Drill. just focus on the firemanship? Yep, because the requirement when you leave recruit training is, you know, having those firemanship skills. And yes, depending on where you end up, you're going to have to bolster your other skill sets. But I think it's more on the candidate that we put in those stations of high demand that matters more. If you have a guy that went through recruit training and he has a lot of experience prior to and he or she has a good foundation, then you put him in there. Then, you know, you can give him the less demanding positions at, at a TR hazmat or whatever first and have them work their way up to the rest of it on their time, but you're not really fully taking away from their growth as a pro B firefighter. So I think we're going back to the basics and I think that's important, but I think the learning portion or the drilling portion, we need to spend more time doing that. How are the supplementary courses that you were taking to get on? And then say, in, I would say in the first half of your career, Walk me through those and then talk to me about the difference between those and the supplementary courses you choose to focus on now. I think back when I was applying, a lot of the things were like, you got to add this to your resume. So, you know, take your TR courses, take your hazmat courses, do all those things, fill in your resume and stuff like that. So you're looking at it from a different perspective. And yes, I did spend some time doing more things than others, but as a candidate, it was like, okay, well, I'm going to try my best to learn as much as I can. And I want to take these lessons and try and grow from them, but also I have to take this next one and I have taken this next course. And then now I look at it like, I want to take this one because I know my game is lacking in this. That's kind of the new focus. It's like, okay, well, how can I develop the skills that I know are weak or the skills that I know that there's others out there that have done it in a different capacity or maybe have better ways to go about it. But there's something to be said about, you know, finding good instruction finding good, reputable instructors, guys with good integrity and passion for the job. And if their passion shows when they're teaching, their passion probably shows while they're at their station. And obviously experience. Experience is, is, is a big one, right? Like there's a lot of things that can be taught, but when you share your experiences with them, it kind of brings a whole new meaning to it. So I try to find guys with varied experiences to go learn from. Um, and it's pretty cool because I've met a lot of guys with varied experiences from departments similar to ours to departments larger than ours to some really s small departments. But the thing is, they all have something to offer because like that thing about conversations, learn what their experiences are and then frame what they've just shown you. And that's been pretty cool experience taking supplementary courses now. We don't get the same exposure as the guys did in the 90s or previous to that. We don't get that. So we have to learn from those experiences before those experiences decide that they don't want to do this anymore. Do you find that going from department to department, you see the same kind of guys? Like, you're that guy back in my department. You're this guy at the back of my department. I noticed it in Inside. I'm like, I know <laughs> you're Danny Palmer back at my department. <laughs> you're old school mentor, right? Yeah. Like-minded people are drawn together. Guys who show up at these courses want to be there. Right? Who, oh man, I, I keep going back to him, but he's pretty much framed a lot of how I look at things. But one of the most valuable things, you know, Brass always says is his time, the time you share, the time you've given up. When you go to these courses, everyone who wants to be there is there because they're on their own time. 
maybe their department sends them, but it's still their weekend. It's still their three days off. They still had to put the effort in to go there because they want to be there. So I think that when you show up there, it draws the same people. And that's one of the best ways to recharge your battery. If you're feeling like you're in a rut, go hang with some like-minded people and it will draw you back to where you're supposed to be. And then you're going to go back and you're going to go back to your job and you're going to spend some time with your guys and you're going to be like, all right, I'm back. And this is where I'm supposed to be. And it's a good thing. So you just spend a couple of weeks with recruits and then as a treat for yourself, right? Where most people would be like, I'm out, I'm going to Portugal. Yeah. And go sit on the beach. Where'd you go? I went down to Indy, went down to FDTN, that place and, and Jim McCormick's facility and his programs are, are awesome. You have a cadre of North America's best instructors, giving it their all like, okay, so you won't talk about devoted to teaching and stuff like that. How long are these guys spending in burn structures? How many cylinders are they going through? How much sweat and how much fluids have they had to replace? Why? Because they care so much about it that they're like burning themselves up to do it. They're getting hot. They're getting uncomfortable, but they're doing it because why? You know, it makes for a better class for the student. I couldn't believe how dedicated everyone who worked there was. The support for your student to make a good experience was there. And the lessons you learn came from guys who have done these things. They frame the context. They frame the why you do these things. It was awesome. There was 106 students. So I had 105 like-minded people there to recharge battery. It was fantastic. And it was humbling. That's a good point. It could be a place to recharge your batteries, but it's also a place if you think you've got it nailed down where you would realize you don't. It's where you go to grow. I spent the time with the recruits and they're like, so what are you doing now? I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go be a student. I need to go back. I try to take a course frequently, but I'm like, I, I want to be a student and I want to go learn. FDTN is where you go to grow. Everything you think you're going to do and how you're going to do it meets how it's actually going to play out when you go there. I'm not ashamed to say there was a lot of tough things that I encountered there. And now I go back to my job and I take the lessons I learned there. And I'm like, okay, I need to build on this. I need to learn this. I need to learn this. But then also it's pretty cool when you go there and you're like, I knew that. And I did that because I've been practicing that because some of the other things that, you know, I've practiced and trained throughout when I went there, it's like, okay, I don't need to worry too much about that because I'm comfortable with that to an extent. Now I can focus on the thing that's really going to challenge me. That was awesome. It was three days of Disneyland. The ride lines were worth the wait. You mentioned exposure versus learning. And I think that also speaks to what we talked about trying to get on. Everyone's just trying to build a resume and you're going course to course to course to course. So there's really not a lot of learning. As much as you try and squeeze it out, you don't get the drill time or the repetition on each of those subjects to really know it. Yep. So yes, you show that you paid your money and you sat down and you, and you may have gleaned a few things from it. But our brains have a limited capacity. I know mine does. <laughs> oh, no, 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 yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you, man. When you finally get on the job, now you've got some breathing room. Do you find now you're taking a course, do you give time to let that sink in and drill it before you then choose the next course? You're not just watering it all down? I think by the sheer nature of the availability of courses and time, well, I take a course and I know that I got some time in between that I have things I got to work on. Depending on what kind of course it is, if they're building on each other, then yeah, maybe, maybe look at it and think about taking more time to it. But if it's, you know, totally different things, then maybe I'll just go take them. But there's no growth without reflection. 
So I take those courses and hopefully I come back and I, I learn from it. And it's pretty cool having you guys because they ask questions and you're like, okay, well, yeah, this is what I learned and this is why they said to do something one way or another. Yeah, but definitely have to look back and, okay, I have to devote some time to to mastering the skills or the portion of a particular skill set before I try to move forward on it. Now with some time on, you also now have the perspective of learning something new, maybe feeling wholeheartedly like this is something that a department should do and knowing that that process is a whole other animal. Are you looking for these diamonds in the rough that will have no effect on the department as a whole that you can implement as an individual that's not going to alter everyone else's game plan? It's not going to be so drastic. It's just you doing something small differently that has a big difference versus wanting to change something massive across the board. And do you try and do both of those things? I think the first step to that is before I can try to implement change in even just one other person, I have to be able to have justified that change within myself. Just like certain leadership things, I can't ask people to do things that I can't comfortably do myself. So I think for the past little while, a lot of the focus has been on personal growth, right? Making sure that I have, you know, things squared away before I try and, and change other things. But because I'm not by myself, the beauty of it is that when I try to grow, I have someone maybe with me growing too, and we work together and we figure things out. You know, having you guys is great for that. So what'd you do? I did this and this is why. Well, come try it. And we do those things. Before I can try and change anything, I need to make sure that I'm squared away first. And that process could take forever. So <laughs> we'll see how this goes. My concern, I guess, that they don't want to implement anything different individually because that's just not how our department does it. Uh, let me give you an example. So you choosing to search head up, weight back, foot forward versus hands and knees, that's not going to affect anybody yeah. on the job. And you can just decide to start doing that. Yep. How you move the nozzle, as long as you know that you're doing it properly and it's going to have a good effect, you can just do that. And no one is going to know the difference except it'll just go great. But people may think, well, we don't do that in this department, so they don't make any change whatsoever at all unless their department says they do. But this is what I want to differentiate between yes. the little things like that yep. versus, you know, we don't go anywhere with a hose line, something like that, right? And you just decide to run in without one. That's That would throw a lot of people off. Is that what you're talking about? You're implementing those small yeah. things? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like how, how I throw a ladder, how I tie a halyard. All they ask is that I do it. How I get it there is my business. I'm fortunate that if my boss asks me to do something, either of my bosses, they're like, I need this done. And, you know, they don't generally tell me how to do it. They have an expectation. And that was one of the things that, you know, that I thought about was, okay, well, about the growth part was, okay, my captain has an expectation of me, so I need to get this job done. And then that's where the personal skills came was, okay, so how many ways can I learn how to do this? How many ways are relevant? How many ways work? So those are the little things that, you know, they don't take a cultural change. They don't take a department to change. They just take personal change. And I need to be better. There was a lot of emphasis on a lot of the specialty stuff for a while there. And for me, I kind of looked at them like, I'm going to Z, but I don't have A, B, or C done. So I need to go learn those small skills. And that goes back to the, the college thing, the recruit class thing was a lot of the basic skills I'm learning now are there things that I wish I spent more time on in my first couple of years? I should have been pulling hose every shift. I should have been swinging a tool. I should have been throwing a ladder every opportunity I can. 
and learning those skills because those are the ones that, you know, my boss can be like, I need you to do this. Bye. Go do it. But it was sort of the nature of the beast being thrown into station two. You've got five tech rescue disciplines yeah. plus everything else that a firefighter is expected to do. Yep. There's not a lot of opportunities to get out as a crew and train on those things. They're high risk, low frequency. Yep. Very often that becomes the focus. You got to get it in because you can't afford not to. Yeah. And you're the only station that does it. Right. So. And you're the kind of person that sees that stuff and that you're responsible for and you need to know. You went wholeheartedly into it. You were deep into rope. You instructed in it. Yeah, it was exactly that. We have to learn all of these skills. I have to do this and just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. But then it can't be at the sacrifice of what's going to occur, like the more frequent events that we get called upon to do. Yeah, it was it was pretty daunting getting thrown in there pretty new and pretty young. It was good to have some guidance and some senior members that would be like, hey, man, just calm down. That DP guy, calm down. So you mentioned quite professional. I, I, yeah. I'd uh, I'd agree with that fully. Yeah, you want to talk about it? Like you expect him somewhere, and you turn around, and he's there. And you're just like he's like a ghost. <laughs> yeah. So you talked a bit about, and we just did about guys that supported you and helped you along the way that you aligned with. But in general, what kind of people have derailed you, disheartened you? How have you dealt with that frustration? Yeah, I think everyone kind of. By nature of the fire service, you're in a very close confines with the people that you're supposed to trust with everything, right? And you're supposed to do everything with on the clock. You know, I'd see guys who would take their outside stuff and put that the priority ahead of their full-time stuff, which is to the rest of the crew and stuff like that. That didn't work out for me. It was a challenge when you see guys put stuff ahead of the fire service when you're there and when you're expected to act and... That, that troubled me for a bit. There's a frustration, there's an anger, there's a confusion. Somehow that comes out. How do you digest that? Or was it just releasing it and letting it go? Like, how was that process for you? It was, it was challenging. It was a lot of frustration, a lot of, a lot of anger at points in time. And I had guys who were newer than me there. They would ask me, oh, what are we supposed to do? I'm like, I don't know. But the only thing I can promise you is that, you know, if we go on a call, I'm going to be on the other truck, but I'll be right behind you. We'll get through this and we'll figure this out and we'll work together and we'll we'll solve it. You know, it's just hearing people talk the job, but not commit to the job. That was a little troubling. You're going to do X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, where is it? Talk to brotherhood, but that kind of stuff and use that to guilt people into stuff, but just not exemplify it or return it or just, you know, be the brotherhood guy. But realizing how hard it is to change yourself, then you quickly realize how nearly impossible it might be to change someone else. Did there come a point where there was just, you can't carry that around inside of you every day? I mean, it's a reality because you're there. Yeah. And there's a practical playing out of it, but I just found personally, at some point you have to release it and then all you can do is focus on yourself and the people that you align with and want to align with you and, and do that and put the energy into that. That was part of the growth part was... If I can't rely on someone, I need to be good first. Because if I can't rely on them to have my back, then I better be squared away my skills so we don't get to that point. It was good because the young guys with me or the newer guys with me were in line with that. That's how we try to get past things and realize that we're beyond things that were out of our control. And we just had to make sure that we had our houses squared away first. That was the, hey, there's a lot more out there. And that kind of took me away from some of that 
that negative stuff and brought me around a bit to to venturing down the wormhole of the fire service, which is awesome. And on that note, and on the tangent of just because you can doesn't mean you should, you would make an amazing captain. How did you approach it? It was time, you had the opportunity. How did you process that and why did you make the choice you made? To preface all that, right? Like it's the process within our department is is a different process than other departments because everyone has their way of going about it. You know, I, I think the feeling within our service is that you have to take the first opportunity if you so choose to want to do this in the future. So at that point where I was eligible, the process of mentoring came out. You just had to write tests, make sure you're somewhat competent because you're going to still have a boss behind you, but you're going to be riding the front seat. Did that. My boss at that time, he's like, I want you to do this. Okay, I'll try it. So I jumped in the front seat, worked one night shift, did a couple calls and stuff. And at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, I did what I was supposed to oversee everything going on, just stand back. And I'm watching it and I'm like, no, this isn't for me. You know, there was things that I just, I just want to get my hands in there and do it. And if you're not comfortable to give that up, then probably shouldn't be a boss yet. So it was more of just what you were actually doing in the position. Or was it a vibe? Was it a feel? Yes, that too. I heard this from, I believe it's Captain Bobby Eckert, and it was, don't give someone an order that you haven't completed yourself. And it pretty much resonated with what I was thinking for the longest time, is that I can't tell someone to do something that I'm not comfortable doing myself. And when I opened that up even more, I realized, you know what? There's a lot about firefighting that I do not know and waiting for the department to provide training or so isn't going to work for me. So I need to go find out and, and learn as much as I can, when I can, where I can, and go about it that way. So, you know, at that point in time, that's roughly eight years on the job. So maybe seven years is when they start talking about that process. I kind of watched the guys I was working with go one way and I went the other way and I'm like, Hey, I need to learn more about the job. So I started going, figuring things out and reading more. And now it's at that point where I just want to get good at being a firefighter before I start telling firefighters to do stuff. Hopefully leading by example and coupling that with a bit of experience than just, you know, by sheer virtue of being in the front seat telling guys to do stuff. People have different experiences, right? And someone who has maybe the same amount of time as me or has less time than me and is, is eligible to write, I'm not saying that they can't do it. It's just they have different experiences than me my experiences lead me to wanting to be more confident as a firefighter before I move forward into the next realm, which I don't even know when that's going to be or if it will be. kind of happy where, where I am right now. It just says not everyone can be a captain or a chief. You need firefighters too, but you also need captains and chiefs. You so do. Everyone has to diverge. Right? Yeah. You have to have people that want to do both. Yeah. And then do both well. Yeah. Developing that foundation of being a good firefighter I think is what's going to lead to becoming a good officer and stuff. I've looked at some of the bosses I've had in the past and some of the chiefs I've had in the past, and I look at their experiences and I'm like, they did the fire gig. They did the fireman stuff. And then I watch them become officers. Those are officers that I want to follow. I want to be a part of. I think it's fair to say that there's those that haven't done the growing first off that see moving up as the only growth opportunity, that that is their growth opportunity. And they choose it too quickly. Yeah. Whereas they could reflect and see how much growth there already is surrounding them. Yeah, and I don't think that particularly is their fault. I think sometimes that 
the culture of our service is that you got to promote, you got to promote, you got to promote. Absolutely. And, and that's where the support comes when you want to promote. There's courses available to you. There's things to do for you. But growth in your position isn't really, it's not that it's not supported. It's not looked in the same regard. Because they'll, they'll support you if you want to go do, you know, many other courses that tend to point you in the direction of the officer role. But, you know, I've found recently that, you know, hey, they're becoming more supportive in the firefighter role. But that wasn't always the culture, right? During the times that I was growing, it was a different story. So now it's kind of nice to be able to see that, hey, you know, growth as a firefighter is also being looked at as important. Things like mentoring is a good opportunity for people to see it if it's really something they want. I think our service is more tailored to guys who want to accelerate, accelerate, accelerate. And they kind of have to do it early because there's benefits to doing it early. doesn't mean it's their fault. It's just, hey... They got to do it and get the bonus incentives and stuff, right? And a lot of them have thrived despite being yep. not supported properly. So yep. kudos to them, right? Their yep. capacity to be brave enough, have the courage to take the risk. Oh, man. Having to go sit in an auditorium with how many other 100 guys and go through a process like that, that takes a whole different kind of nerve. And the preparation prior to, like, I give it to these guys. They give it hard. It's an interesting point you bring up, though, because our, our city does offer a career or education path coaching where you can sit down with someone you can tell them where you want to be and they will lay it out from start to finish sit down say i want to be chief one day and they'll help mark that path out for you right what it would be but i wonder if you went in and just sat down and said i'm this kind of firefighter right now i want to be this kind of firefighter in five years support me in doing that i wonder how the conversation would go yeah i wonder how that would go too if I was on the other side of the table. I'd be like, go find a mentor. Keep your mind open. Read a book. Learn every day. Check your truck. Know your rig. Follow orders. But I wonder if practically they could help put courses in front of you. They would have the knowledge of FDTN. They would say, okay, here are the places you need to go. And then here's the times when we'll be able to send you. Here's the money available. Here's the path. So you're going to take this one this year, this one the next year, this one the next year. Like that would be... I hadn't really thought of it until you brought it up. This is why I like talking to people. That would be that'd be pretty awesome. Right? Oh, it would be great. We had to lay it out from rookie to competent first class firefighter. Yeah. Where would you send them in when in what order? Yeah. Yeah. And lay it out for them. And someone could go in and sit down with someone in the city and they say, Yeah, this is already laid out for you. Here it is. Oh yeah. That'd be pretty awesome because I think you'd find once you develop a, a guy into a good f- first class firefighter that you'll probably find a good batch of leaders out of that group. You'll have leaders with a little bit of experience and knowledge and stuff like that. And hopefully throughout their time as a as a first-class firefighter, they apply those skills. So that way they can bring their varied experiences back, right? And that's what's going to develop your officer. It's one of those things, and, and we, we've talked about it before, especially when we're like doing the stretching the hose and stuff and, you know, seeing it a mess and stopping and looking at it and seeing if it's a mess or stopping and looking at it as how to solve the problem. And, you know, when you talk about how to solve the problem, you know, it usually clicks because people don't see what they're not looking for. And that's what I think, you know, you have an experienced leader and you have a guy with good knowledge and training behind him. When he becomes a leader, he's seeing the things that his fire guys aren't looking for. And not just the overall round scene survey kind of thing, but they're seeing things that the guy's not looking for, whether it's pushing in or forcing a door or something like that. I think that's why it's important to have a good firefighter developing into a good leader. And I think that career path thing would would help. Because otherwise, 
people are going to have the same experiences before us that we've had right now that we're just getting lucky. You just happen to talk to someone or you hear about something and you seek it out yourself. And it's almost like we're searching without knowing how to search. We're just banging around in the dark. Yeah. And then luckily we come upon something and it's like, oh my God, I, I found this. Yeah. yeah. If you had something laid out, then probably a lot more, a lot more learning, a lot more growth happening, right? That'd be something interesting to look into. And, and building on it too. Yep. And you'd be assured that you know you're in the right place at that time. And you'd have a very consistent message going forward. Because every time you, every time someone learns that, right, they share it and it grows from there. So talk to me about giving a lesson context. You've touched on it a little bit. Are you talking about your mistakes, the calls you've run, the calls that you've read about? When you say putting things in context, how do you draw it and make it real for people? If I give you a skill, but don't tell you the why you're doing it, I could tell you the skill all day. But if I don't give you the context and how it's applied, you might miss an opportunity to apply it. So you and I probably have a lot of these where we understand the skill. We understand the context of when it should be used, but we haven't actually been placed in the situation yet to apply in real time. It's unlike a sport where you're drilling with football, they teach you the skill, they teach you the play and the how, and they set up the defense and you run it and you run it and you run it. You're actually using it all the time where yeah. we can learn a skill, we can learn the context, we get it. And like you're just biting at the bit to actually get the opportunity to yeah. use it. But if you haven't had it yet, do you find that's different than sharing a mistake or a win that you've had with people? Like, I've actually used this 10 times and it's and it works. Um, so I guess without getting too technical, I guess one of the examples would be like how we throw ladders versus fly in versus fly out. I can teach you how to throw it fly out or an extended drop it in, call it a day. And I can teach you how to throw it fly in and you're resting against the wall and you're, you're hauling it up. But if you don't understand, because all we drill is in a sterile tower, that if there's a soffit there or if there's something in the way, that it's probably not going to work the same, right? So you got to apply that context to it. And I don't think it's as deep a message as it needs to be. I think it's just a practical application of the knowledge, right? Like if I tell you, throw that one fly in and you see, hey, soffit or something above overhead that you can't pull the halyard to clear it, then that skill set isn't going to work the same, right? So you just got to give them the insight into the applications of it. And yes, you know what, haven't had to do it in that regard, but if you understand why it's been done in that capacity, then maybe it might help them learn it a bit more or learn where they can apply things. Yeah, I think it's just more giving them insight into the application. So framing that context for them as opposed to anything else, like just make sure the lessons you're teaching them, the actual whys and how to apply it versus here's a skill set, but not giving them the full story. Because they're going to be missing part of it, right? Do you share missteps of yours? Oh, yeah. Because really, that's growth, right? Like, I make mistakes all the time. And, you know, I'm fortunate. My crew's pretty good. And they always back me up, right? We all make mistakes. We all do. And that's how you grow from it. And that's a good reason for lessons sinking in is when you've made that mistake. And then I hope that I tell that mistake someone else so that they don't have to go through what I did in order to learn the same lesson. It's like your parents say, right? Like, just listen. And you're like, ah, oh. but they have experience. Yeah. And I should have listened a lot more. I said, <laughs> tell me about it, man. <laughs> tell me about it. And there's a lot of things from guys growing up in the service that I should have listened more. And those are the things I try to share with people. Cause one of the things was I wish during college recruit training that I wasn't so fearful in you know, oh my gosh, I got to get this right and worrying about getting it right than actually learning it and, and owning that skill set and getting it wrong many times instead of just, 
oh my gosh, I got to get this right. Once. Well, is it because you're being compared to others to get a job? You know, if it came down to say they were, you know, deciding on percentages of marks and you got 96 and, and this is, this is the captain thing, right? And the other guy got 102 with bonus marks, they get the gig. So the, the opportunities to fail aren't there in the essence of learning. And when you're in a competitive state, you seek to be perfect or better than the person beside you. So then you feel like you can't fail or you lose the goal. That's one of the first things I talk about is like, this is a place to make mistakes. You got to change your mindset because we're done with that competitive state. I think there's a lot of people that breathe a sigh of relief, but they have a hard time wrapping their head around it because that's the game they've been in for so long. Yeah, there's a balance of it though. I think having, like I said earlier, like talking with them and having a conversation with them about learning and stuff and telling them that, you know, it's okay to make a mistake is a part of the growth and learning process. But I think you also have to balance it that, you know what, your mistakes, they do have consequences outside an application, but it's okay to try and learn. If you take that stress mm -hmm. off of them that, hey, this is just, you know, an open environment to learn and make mistakes, which is true, right? And that's how they're going to grow. But we still have to impart a bit of a bit of consequence for action. Well, you're not allowed to be a perpetual screw up. Yes. <laughs> yes. There has to be mistakes and a process towards mastery. Yeah. It's yeah. more of getting them out of that mindset of I'm fearful. And, and then we all know when you're afraid and you're telling yourself, well, yeah. don't miss, don't miss, don't miss, don't miss. Yeah. You end up missing. Right? Yeah. Oh, exactly. Right. I think that's where you have to look at recruit training as are we still judging them or are we trying to train them? Right. Like, that's huge. It's like, okay, they've got this far. That means they've proven themselves to a point. Is this where we help them grow to the next level or are we still picking away at them to find out what's going to make them break or what's going to make them tick or what's going to make them fail? That or, kind feel, of thing. or feel humiliated. Yeah. That's one of my peeves. You have people in whatever capacity they have berate someone for making a mistake, knowing well enough that they probably couldn't pull it off either. And to me, that's a huge barrier in learning. That doesn't stop a recruit class. Oh, it makes me shake my head sometimes. But yeah, if we look past, are we judging them for this position or are we trying to make them better so when they hit the floor, they're ready to go because, you know, we're a young department. We have a lot of, I don't know what the average was. Would they say the average first class firefighter had less than double digits in experience? We're a young department. So it's in our best interest to make sure that when they leave their program that, hey, they're closer to being good for the road than when they got here. I just think that we need to move past the judging stuff. And it's still important to quantify their skills and make sure that they're successful. But if we look at it more on the lines of, okay, well, how can we train them better and prepare them better? Then we'll be better ahead. So there's better ways to deal with entitlement or overconfidence. And there's also better ways to deal with people that are self-deprecating and beating themselves down all the time. Yeah, and there's, I think it, there's something in the middle there. Yep. And I think it comes out during challenging training. And I think that's the way it should be. It should be challenging. And then it levels the playing field because you have the guys who are overconfident and they find out, hey, man, there's probably some things that I can learn from this. And then you have the guys who are really challenging saying, hey, I've driven myself and now I can excel at this. And if we find that happy medium, then I think we'll be doing OK. And I think we'll have some pretty awesome recruits to become the senior firefighters, to become the leaders of our department. How do you satisfy the need for growth and mastery with things outside the department? Martial arts are a big thing with you. Martial arts did play a big part growing up and stuff. And for the past while, it's taken a back step to, to firefighting. But there's a lot of lessons that I've taken from martial arts that I'm fortunate enough to share with my kids and stuff like that. So some of the technical stuff, yes, but a lot of like the discipline and stuff was good growing up. 
and I spent a lot of time in a dojo and in a, in a gym learning those things and showing up, showing up even though you're, you know, you're uncomfortable and getting uncomfortable, going in there and rolling and have some guy humble you just like that. Those are all great lessons I learned from there. And I met my wife there. <laughs> so from growing up to now, like what arts have you touched on? A bit of taekwondo. That was like really short. Then I did karate for a bit. And then I did wrestling throughout high school. Did some uh, MMA for a bit. And that was like, I guess before MMA was like super cool. So then it got super cool. And I'm like, okay, what else can I learn? Got into like Filipino martial arts, which is like stick fighting and stuff. And the group that I trained with, they did full contact stick fighting. <laughs> yeah. And that's where I met my wife. <laughs> yeah. So we got in there and it'd be, it'd be you show up and you drill and you drill and you drill. And I guess maybe this is how it's played into the fire life is that we'd learn one skill set and he'd be like, okay, you're going to work on this block or this set of blocks for this period and you're going to drill it. And it would be, okay, he's swinging at, at Tai Chi speed and now he's swinging with timber and swinging that thing so it's fast. But the progression was there. They would give you one skill set to work on and then you'd be like, okay, keep going, keep going. Now faster, now swing harder. And then you'd be like, oh, it makes sense. And then he would be like, okay, now this is how you apply that. When this is coming, then I'm going to do this. And that's how it links to the next exactly. thing. Exactly. So he bridges and bridges the lessons. And I found that from a lot of my martial arts instructors. They would give you a particular skill set, tell you to drill it, get comfortable with it, and then be like, okay, now test it. And that's when the guy would be swinging as hard and fast as they could. And that's how you applied it. And then you'd be like, bing, it worked. They know when you know that you're ready for the next skill. Yeah. So... That's kind of helped a lot with, with how I look at learning and, I guess, teaching. I just see myself as a guy in the back of a truck. I see myself as a teacher. I don't see myself as an instructor. I just see myself as a guy that's been fortunate to, to learn a few lessons and be able to share them. How do you approach it with your kids then getting involved? And how do you teach them? How do you guide them? How do you have patience with them? That's another question. Oh, man. <laughs> Every parent asks themselves Yeah, that. you're a dad. And some days it's just you... you you kind of look at it like, uh, what do I do, right? And yeah, you have, or am you know, I being a good parent? Yeah, am I being too hard on them? Am yes. I being too soft on them? And I don't know. That's like, all right, you've like found the million-dollar question. I think it's just around that and being fortunate and having balance. Balance when it comes to looking at, okay, well, I was their age before. How did I do it and what did my parents do? And then I asked my wife, well, what? how did you deal with this and how are you about this and I guess the patience and the discipline sometimes it's challenging but the discipline and just you know trying to develop like structure is what martial arts taught me and hopefully to teach my kids right and and perseverance and it's okay to get beat up or get worked down but just get back up and keep going and you'll be you'll be good to go do you appreciate and feel there's benefit in allowing other people that aren't their parents to teach them but sometimes there's things that's better taught by someone else and not taught by you. I think that comes back to when I was a kid and I looked at it and I'd hear two lessons, one from my dad and one from someone else, an uncle, a coach or whatever. They're the same message, but sometimes you need to hear it from a different mouth to make it settle on your ears. It's good. Like my kids are involved in extracurricular stuff and, you know, we always tell them, you know, you got to listen, you got to pay attention, you got to focus. And I think sometimes the lesson comes through hearing it from someone else. So like work, I could hear 
or I could tell someone something, but maybe it's not as clear a message to them because of the way they learn than hearing it from someone else. And I think perspective is a good thing in that, in that regard when it comes to teaching kids or teaching anyone or learning too. Or their preconceived notion of you, right? Because people get yeah. stories and then they have a filter and then they hear you speak and they're either going to confirm it or, or deny, deny it. it, right? Yeah. Whereas they don't just go in open and let you be who you are with them in that moment yeah. and play it out that way. Yeah. And obviously my kids have a preconceived notion and that's how they the do. guy. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I took them rock climbing with the guys from work and the guys from work were watching and I was like, you know, encouraging my kids and I said, see, you know, I'm same outside of there, right? Like, right. I'm, I'm not going to be. The way you treat people, you yeah. treat them like people. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it can be a little tough, but you know, it is what it is. Another hobby of yours. Tell me how you get into knives and now you do leather work. Yeah. How, how did that start and where are you at with it? Just for some reason, something about forming a metal. So getting into the job, I was fortunate to meet a Toronto fire guy who made knives and he made some pretty cool tools. I used to pick his brain and stuff like that. And he would guide me through the process. And I'm like, you know what? I need to try this. And again, that's the thing, right? Taking a step into the unknown and then seeing what it has to offer. And yeah, that's always a daunting experience. You have, you have investment into it. You're investing your time. You're investing your money. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to try to make a knife because I, I like sharp things. It's cool. And I use them. It's cool. So I started making knives and, you know, just as a hobby. But because of that, I got to pick my dad's brain a lot because he's very technical and he would guide me through technical processes of, of building stuff. And then I started building my own equipment. All of it came because, you know, a lot of my hobbies were, I'm not going to pay some guy to do something that I know I can do. Yeah, that's a lesson that's expensive and long, but after a while you kind of learn there's certain ones that you can do and certain ones you can't. They're worth throwing money at. Yeah. And knife making was one of the ones that I enjoyed because it wasn't just knives. It was just things related to tools and stuff. So that meant, you know, working on axes and making handles and stuff. They're all like somewhat interconnected. Then it became, can you make a sheath for that knife? I'm like, hmm, maybe I can. And I'd go into it and I would get the tools and stuff and invest a little time and effort into it and then start hammering away at leather stuff. And then it just progresses onto there. But it was one of those things that... To me, it was like something I wanted for myself, like firefighting equipment, right? If I wanted to make myself a radio holder, I'm going to do it for myself. Yeah, I'm wearing one of yours. <laughs> I know. That's a one of a kind, though. <laughs> no one else is getting one of those. But yeah, it was one of those things that, you know what? I think I can do that, so I'm going to do it. And that kind of led on to my hobbies. And they just kept growing from there. And, you know, building stuff in the garage is always fun, right? It keeps your hands busy. Having a bit of, like, keeping my hands awake or, like, keeping my mind going is something that I've found helped me just stay a little sharper. And you've done it around the hall. You know, you built a more extensive tool bench at the station. Yeah. Right? A little bit of a um, mad scientist area. Yeah. But messy desk is the sign of a genius. Is that yeah. Say? Yeah. I, I'm going to, I'm going to back that one up and say, it's not all my mess. Some, something about workbenches at a fire hall. They just accumulate stuff. They do. But there may be a few of my tools there. And your tool benches at home is uh Oh yeah. It's, 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 is it a room and now a garage? Like how is that going? Yeah. It's a constant, a constant work in progress, right. but it's, we it's, need to move because I need property and outbuildings. And... That's where the balance comes in. Right? right. I'm like, you still need the conveniences. So how do we make it work? But yeah, like at work, it's cool. Cause I, thanks to, thanks to brass, he encouraged me to just build stuff. I'd see something he built and I'd be like, 
send him a line and be like, hey, man, is it cool if I build that? And he'd be like, yeah, for sure. Go ahead. Man, always giving with his knowledge and stuff. So I started, you know, making little things like mortise lock props. And then that led onto a window bar prop. And then, you know, it just kept going from there, like making different cutting tree kind of things. and Just things that, you know, I thought I could practice on. And then you realize that when I come back to work, that it's not in the same place. You're kind of like, hmm. And then you find out it's because guys have been using it. And that is cool. You know, there's a lot of guys who talk about it. The busiest companies just kind of go out there and make training when they can and try and do as much as they can because it's important to them. So it was cool to build props and stuff and get things going and, and seeing guys use it and appreciate it, right? Having a different set of deadbolt props. So guys understood why you used a key tool or what happens after you pull the lock. So that kind of has taken a lot of brain power now. It's just like, hey, this is cool. I can build stuff. And it, and it led me to learning and build new skills. It's one of the arguments I've had about having specific props in every single station. There's all these sort of half measure solutions to, well, we'll have mobile props on trailers and deliver them. And like, it doesn't... What happens at, at the only time, you know, and I've got the motivation at nine o'clock at night where I just want to yep. pop two doors can yep. I just, and I just can't walk out in the bay and do it, right? It's got to be a whole schedule thing and, you know, then it gets canceled because of other priorities. And yep. so there's, I mean, you obviously can't have a uh, an entire apparatus bay full of props, but there should be a handful of ones. We've said a hose deployment prop, 24 foot ladder and a uh, door. How about but, those three things? Let's start there. Yep. But then it's money. Everything's money and time. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was one of the beauties of, I guess, building a door, a door prop, was that if there's something that I needed to work on, get reps on, I could just walk over and do it. And I could just, yep, I don't need to work on this skill. And, you know, I learned something more when I come back from FDTN. I'm like, I want to go in the back and I want to try this. And I can just kind of do it. I joke and it's like I could have got an Xbox or I could have got a PlayStation or I could have built this door. And, you know, having some pretty good mentors, they're just like, dude, just do it. I'm like, okay. You know, one of those things just click and I just kind of started doing it. And that's where the props came from, right? It's like the training and training we do doesn't need to be four hours of regimented training. It could be 45 minutes of everyone hanging around the back and be like, okay, y'all, y'all remember how to, how to pull a lock and why we do it and what we do on the inside. And then, hey, this is what happens when this fails. What's your next step? And then it's done after that. Everyone moves on with it. Guys go back to studying. Guys go back to cleaning. Whatever, right? Yeah, and that's the beauty of having having the accessibility to to props and stuff. Since we should be doing it quick, it shouldn't take you long to do three or four. Yep. But yeah, you know, having the accessibility stuff is going to make, hopefully make guys use them more. But you also see that, you know, there's that portion of our community that's will watch other people do it and criticize them for doing it but not actually getting out there, getting their hands dirty too. So we have to be mindful of that too. And just keeping that, that ability for guys to go out there and do stuff and make mistakes and stuff and, and learn. But yeah, props are cool. Thing about props is that remember they are props and that's, I guess, where the context comes into play. Understanding what you can do on a prop versus what you can't do on a prop. That's, you know, as much as I like building props and playing on them, that's why I seek out and see, okay, well, that's why that doesn't work in the real world because what you're doing is doing it on a prop that's solid steel weighs x amount of pounds and doesn't move or flex where you want it to spring loaded and exactly and that's where i think it was clean and even brass talking about beating the prop and that was exactly. a mind for me like wow i'm really awesome at doing this prop 
Exactly. But I could be shit at doing an actual tour. (laughs) Exactly. But that's the thing, right? And that's the beauty of props is, is to get your reps in, but you also have to remember that they are limited in their, in their capacity because they are props. So yeah, I'm a prop guy because I like building stuff, but you have to understand that they are still props. They're not going to replicate what you may find outside all the time. But just like you learning how to perfect building a knife, your 50th knife is different than your first. Yep. So are you, are you finding now that you're able to build props that are more and more realistic, and especially with the guidance of people like Clayton and Brass? I think by just by the nature of a prop, it's very hard to, well, not very hard, but it's, it's always going to be a challenge to, to give you something that is real. Something like ripping out a mortise lock might be a little easier because you're stressing it in the same spots that you would stress it, depending on how you build it. But at the end of the day, it's still going to be a prop. And you're not going to have things like, you know, door handles in, in the way. You're not going to have tamper guards in place. So that's where applying the context of it and saying, hey, if this happens in real life, well, then you have to revert to your next step or your next plan, right? You're always bridging. Just to look at forcing forcing entry, it's always bridging, right? You're going to do one, but you don't see, like, you don't get stuck on one and you move to the next thing if it doesn't work. So I think props are good for isolating a single skill set and trying to replicate a lot of reality and the best way to do it is just go try to find the opportunity to force real doors but they are good for ensuring that you understand the fundamentals of it and that way when you go out there you can understand the variables that come into play and what about fitness wise i mean you said that martial arts is taking a back seat but how do you find time with family and work do you keep your fitness up functionally by drilling at work or do you do anything above and beyond that it's yeah challenging and balancing like i know there's things that i need to improve on but I was fortunate. The family got me a squat rack. We got weights and stuff. And, you know, I just go in the basement and try and get some stuff done. But I try to frame my workouts so that they're not long and drawn out. And that, you know, maybe they replicate something that I'll be doing, like just picking up stuff and putting it down. You know, just keep it simple. Just get it through. But there's a lot more, like after the summer break, getting back into the groove of things. But I think drilling gives you that insight into actually what's being used and what's being stressed when you carry 24 footer with your pack on and all that stuff well there's different things used here when you're dragging a dummy but you're crawl dragging him or something then that's a different skill set you know those are things that i want to dabble in more going on air and doing the repetitive tasks that we may be asked to do and it's pretty cool because we can do most of that at the station especially at two people who've been fortunate enough to give good insight into good training practices good workout practices and things that can help us better on the job. But yeah, just trying to stay on top of the curve as, yeah, as, as opposed age. to behind. Yeah. And that's the thing, just don't recover the same, right? Things that I did when I was 20, now, <laughs> oh man. Would you be interested in any of the strongman stuff and lifting odd objects? Honestly, I just want to be strong to do my job. I see those guys, man, they're intense. I don't know if you follow Brian Olson. Yes. That That's guy. who was coming to mind, right? Oh, my one, gosh. His most recent one was lifting the blacksmith anvil, oh, the anvil by the horn. And that's funny. It just made me think of now, oh. like at Station 1, years back, you got the massive cast iron pan. Like, who can hold it straight armed out with one hand and lift it up, right? Yeah. Like, that's that kind of, the, the feats of strength yeah. that aren't allowed to <laughs> that happen aren't allowed. around <laughs> the hall. Yeah. They, that still happen. So, that was really interesting when you see, oh, yeah, like how... Can I pick that up? And he's taken it to the nth degree. I oh, mean, yeah. The guy but is just a bull. If you look at like, you know, picking up a stone, that is like, to me, it's just like, wow, 
It's something that has no handles. It weighs an excessive amount of weight. And the dude is strong because he took it from the ground and put it on a barrel that's, what, four feet high? Yeah, those things are cool. But I think I, for me personally, I just want to be functional enough, strong enough to do the job and keep up with my kids. But the big one is like, you know, just staying ahead of that curve, right? Like we all know and we, we've heard the stories, injuries and stuff like that and things that, that catch up with you that you kind of just got to try and stay ahead of the curve. And I have some catching up to do because, you know, things took a bit of a break. I think it was Brian that was talking about the benefits of strength in relation to cardio. You don't need to spend hours and hours and hours on the treadmill if you're really really strong and then it's that much easier for you to pick up that thing that the other person would struggle with that then they would get more gassed faster so obviously the stronger you are the easier everything is so yeah. you're not your body's not working as hard and that, yeah again it's 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 so common sense but until you hear someone say it it does like your consumption's gonna be less if you do the task in one shot versus four right right so, so maybe you can flex cardio <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's yep you're, you're going down there scott said you can flex cardio uh so talk to me about a few of the resources that have been guiding lights for you i became aware of uh the book of andy you know work my way through that book a shoop on that and then you mentioned one recently um random thoughts oh that was probably i think it was like this one of the second books i got clayton was like you gotta check this book out and i'm pretty sure you brought it in the station and i'm like nope now i gotta get my copy and you just read that and like if you haven't seen it before, it's a like almost like a culmination of all of uh, Tom Brennan's articles. So they're direct and to the point, but yet they pack so much insight. Just like the book Andy, same thing. Exactly, yeah. right? Because I believe a lot of that is a culmination of things from fire nuggets and from fire engineering and stuff all put together. This is somewhat similar to that. So you're getting all these awesome like truck lessons in short articles. So in that regard, like, you know, there's a lot of insight into things, how he sets up ladders, you know, how he sets up aerials, platforms, all those things, like truck work stuff, search stuff. It's a good read. And then what I found is that as the library grows, you find yourself going back to the books that you've read before and just finding specific sections and looking at it. But also the beauty of it is that when the library grows, if there's one particular topic that I need to brush up on, I can go through the library and find out how three or four different people approached the same thing. And, you know, you'll find a lot more similarities than you will differences, and that's cool. Yeah, so Random Thoughts was one of one of the first books that I picked up and gone through it, and then you find out what's next. Because when you read Random Thoughts or you read any text, they reference other people. Because our, our service grows when we credit the history and where we learned it from. So they credit another author or another firefighter. And then you pick up the next book and then it becomes the next. And then, you know, you find out, well, what's your spice? What, what, what are you into? Well, at the time, you know, maybe I'm into learning more about building construction and why things collapse. So then there goes the Vincent Dunn books, right? And stuff like that. And yeah, there's a lot of books right now that some that I've gone through fully, other ones that I go through for specific content. So yeah, I, I kind of grow grow that library as best as I can. And this is why I have that resources page for the podcast, yeah. right? And then the credit page, obviously, which yeah. you're on, which whether you know it or not, but you're on there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's my page. I'll do what I want with it. All right. <laughs> you have All to right. live with it. Thanks. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, hearing you talk about how when you read uh, an article like that and they've cited other people, 
you know, I've scratched the surface of this in my academic career, which is <laughs> short and not so storied, but I think that's what you learn that academics do well and these other industries do very well is that when people want to learn something, the first thing they have to do is a literature review. You got to go back and see what people have already studied and researched. Like you have to start from what's been done first and then look at it critically and then see what needs to be added or what, yeah. where you can grow with it. We don't necessarily do that in our service. We don't do a lit review. We don't dig back. Yeah, we, we look at what's being presented to us and like, wow, you know, that's either the latest, greatest thing or we discredit it, right? And we don't look as to why. And that was where the whole, why are people doing these things context thing came to me. And like to not get too technical, but like exterior water application has been done. Like Chicago has been, you know, deck gun attacks forever. But then I pulled up one of my old, an older book. And I think it was William Clark's The Principles of Firefighting or something like that. And he talks directly about exterior water application and, you know, the angles and the patterns and, you know, goes right into in depth on it. Right. And this is where you start learning. Nothing is new. Someone's done it before. And, you know, I like to give credit to where it was done and, and learn from them why they did it in that time and stuff like that and how, you know, they applied it. So that's why I think it's pretty cool to rip apart books and go through stuff. So would those be your highlights then? The book Andy, Book of Shoot, The Manual Hose, Oh yeah, Random the, Thoughts? The I got a whole pile. Um, so it was pretty cool because when I went to FDTN, I got to meet Tim Klett. Stretching and operating the first line, fire notes. That was one of the ones that kind of took a broad topic and narrowed it down to something that, you know, I could I could remember for the most part and I could apply for the most part. And dude has experience, right? And to see him, like to hear him teach was, was pretty awesome because the stuff that I read about, he was just showing us an application. These are the things you need to do. Yeah. I got a pile of books, man. Yeah. Any other courses on the horizon? Um... You can take a break now, or did you ever take breaks? Well, <laughs> I think the first part of my career was a break, right? Because I didn't know any better. <laughs> yeah, I would echo that. Yeah, I didn't know any better, yeah. and you know, making up for lost time. Yeah, yeah, making up for lost time, trying to be good, be good at this job because, you know, I owe it to my family. They give up their time so that I can go do stuff and learn stuff. So I want to be able to be able to give them time. So I want to go through this career and be as best as I can at it and but on the horizon probably next courses probably just look at more firefighting courses look into some more truck work maybe splash some more search and engine stuff and advancing lines and getting different perspectives or we'll see what's presented and I'll go from there have you done FDIC yet no that's big that's time the, and money that's investment. the big one that people talk about you know, and obviously the firemanship conference is another one yeah yeah that'd be that'd be pretty cool too uh, right now like FDTN's pretty much, pretty much been pretty big on my horizon after coming back and having an eye-opening experience there, and now it's like, okay, well, what's the next step? And learning from some of those guys there and seeing what's next for them to teach, so I could be a student down there and and do stuff. Is your time with the recruits going to be a regular thing? Are you going to dive back in every class? That's beyond me. I don't. I don't know. I enjoy it, and I hope they enjoy it. I hope they they learn something from it. And I hope I have something to share with them, and I hope we both grow because. At the end of every class, I stop and I give them credit. And I'm like, hey, this experience hasn't been, you know, me sharing what I've learned with you. It's been just as much as me learning from you guys. They show me how to be a better fireman. Sometimes they teach me how to 
get my point across better. And then sometimes they just make me scratch my head and go, you know what? I need to go crack one of those books and look deeper into this. You know, I do enjoy it. If I'm welcome back there, I probably would do it again. Yeah, but again, that's beyond me. That's beyond me. I do enjoy it, though. I think giving perspective from the floor is something that they need to hear before they actually hit the floor. Well, you're welcome back here if you want to do this again. <laughs> Anytime, man. <laughs> Anytime. I just, yeah. I hope I don't ramble too much. No, no. You've done good. Thanks, man.